Is it easy to tell the sane from the insane? We'll discuss an experiment on that very topic today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth, and today we'll be discussing the Rosenhan experiment. Last week, we discussed Nellie Bly's stay in a mental institution in the 1890s, and how her experiences revealed the darker side of care for the mentally ill in the 19th century. Today, in part two of our examination on how those with mental illnesses have been treated, we're going to spend less time on conditions in the institutions or hospitals dedicated to care for individuals with mental illnesses, and instead, Examine a study which aimed to prove that we can't actually know who is sane and who is not. Or at least a checklist can't tell us. Which reminds me of Christina Ricci in the 1991 film The Addams Family, in which she explains that her Halloween costume is her regular outfit because she's dressed as a homicidal maniac and they, quote, they look just like everyone else. Although it was Christina Ricci playing Wednesday Addams in The Addams Family, so take from that what you will. Anyway, our topic today is less about the insane blending in with insane, and instead about the sane being judged as insane. In 1973, psychiatrist David Rosenhan published the article entitled On Being Sane in Insane Places in the journal Science. To say it made some ripples in the mental health community would be an understatement. In many ways, his experiment was a repeat of Nellie Bly's assignment, but on a much, much larger scale. While Bly had been hired by a newspaper in the late 19th century to feign madness and see firsthand the treatment of inmates at a notorious New York asylum, Rosenhan's pseudo-patients, as he termed them, infiltrated numerous psychiatric hospitals to see how easy it was to be labeled insane, and, as he discovered, it, it was pretty easy. Let's back up, though, and discuss the 80 years between Bly and Rosenhan's experiments and see what had happened, if anything, in the field of care for the mentally ill. After all, after Bly's expose, 10 Days in a Madhouse, was published, weren't there supposed to be changes? Better care for the mentally ill? Better tests to assess who was, in fact, actually mentally ill? But what was the reality on the ground? In the 1890s, government oversight of mental institutions in the U.S. increased, Ideas began to shift that there were biological reasons for being mentally ill, although these ideas were then questioned by the rise of psychoanalysis created by Sigmund Freud. By the mid-20th century, group therapy and physical treatments were often used hand-in-hand to treat patients. Group therapy helped to make patients feel less alone, and physical experiments helped doctors try out physical experiments, basically, These included electroshock therapy, insulin shock therapy, inducing seizures, baths in freezing water or being wrapped in freezing sheets, fever therapy, and, of course, the infamous lobotomies, in which ice picks were used on the frontal lobes of the brain. The creator of the ice pick lobotomy procedure won the Nobel Prize for inventing this treatment, and, all in all, at least 40,000 people in the U.S. underwent this procedure. Starting in the 1950s, however, Lack of staff in asylums and the development of antipsychotic drugs led to a shift from large asylums to smaller community programs. By the 1970s and the return of soldiers from Vietnam suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, 
Treatments continued to revolve around community efforts like halfway houses and programs to aid in job searches. The use of medications rose, such as Thorazine and Lithium. While these treatments could have their own problems and long-term institutionalization still existed for some, the 20th century saw rapid changes, not all positive, in the treatment of the mentally ill. So what was David Rosenhan's problem with his treatment, and why did he create his experiment? David Rosenhan was a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists are medical doctors and view mental illness to be on par with physical illness. There was a lot of discussion in certain communities rather recently over what is known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or more commonly known as the DSM, which is currently in its fifth edition, and it, the reason there was so much discussion was, for example, that it revised the classification of autism. The DSM has been used by psychiatrists since the 1950s to help doctors categorize different forms of mental illness. By the 1960s, so roughly a decade into the use of the DSM, Rosenhan and others like him began to believe that the DSM was faulty, and it couldn't reliably categorize or predict mental illness. A decade later, in the 1970s, Rosenhan set out to prove this contention. He selected seven other people besides himself to be pseudo-patients. The goal was to gain admission to 12 different hospitals, some private, some public, some wealthy, some poor, in five states by convincing the admitting doctors that he or she were insane. The pseudo-patients were three women and five men. In the real world, they were a psychology graduate student in his 20s, three psychologists, a pediatrician, a painter, a housewife, and, of course, Rosenhan, a psychiatrist. Like Nellie Bly in the 1890s, each of the pseudo-patients were, if successful, to record their treatment in these disparate institutions. Again, like Bly, the pseudo-patients were only to be quote-unquote insane until admitted. Then they were to revert to normal behaviors. Unlike Bly, though, there was no powerful newspaper authority to get them out. In fact, if you're a fan of Pulp and their song Common People, at this point you can climb the walls, but if you call your dad, he could end it all. Yeah, that might have worked for Bly, but it's not going to work for Rosenhan or the other pseudo-patients. In order to be released, the patients had to convince the proper channels that they were, indeed, sane. Alright, so how did they get themselves admitted? Basically, they went to these different hospitals and told doctors that they were hearing voices. The voices were largely unintelligible, except for words like empty, hollow, thud. All of the patients were admitted, and almost all of them were labeled schizophrenic. They were kept for anywhere from 7 to 52 days, with 19 days being the average length of their stay. And none of the staff suspected anything, though I suppose they were happy to have such behaviorally compliant patients. What was life like after being admitted to a hospital for the mentally ill in the 1970s? The pseudo-patients realized none of the staff seemed to notice them much, and they openly walked around scribbling about their stays in their little notebooks. In fact, the only other people to suspect that the pseudo-patients didn't belong were other patients who accused them of being sane. To the hospital staff, however, the note-taking by the pseudo-patients, why that was just pathological manifestations of their mental illnesses. Each of the pseudo-patients were also prescribed medications to help with his or her symptoms, but in only two instances were the pills actually swallowed. Otherwise, the staff only thought the pseudo-patients had done so. Some of the pseudo-patients witnessed abuse by staff members, but rather than being an open system of how to deal with inmates, as was the experience of Nellie Bly, the staff members guilty of such behaviors only did so when alone with the patients and stopped if another staff member arrived. 
Finally, Rose and Han had instructed each of the pseudo-patients to request from staff, doctors or nurses, when they could expect to be released. According to the results of this study, almost none of the staff even acknowledged that the pseudo-patients had spoken when taxed with this question. The main finding of Rose and Han's experiment was that each of the pseudo-patients recorded feelings of powerlessness and depersonalization. One assumes that Nellie Bly would have found these descriptions of life in a modern hospital for the mentally ill to be similar to her experiences in a 19th century asylum. Eventually, though, each of the pseudo-patients got out with a diagnosis of schizophrenia in remission. What happened next is even funnier. Well, to me. Okay, sidebar. I won't say that the Rosenhan experiment is my most favorite experiment on social phenomena. That would be the Stanford Prison Experiment, also from the 1970s, which must have just been the decade for awesome social experiments. And I highly suggest that you watch the season three episode of Veronica Mars, in which the students perform this experiment, if for no other reason than it's really odd for me, a child of the 80s and 90s, to see Ryder Strong as a sadistic prison guard. And if that gets you to watch the episode, then we're probably already friends. Anyway, back to the Rosenhan experiment, not the Stanford Prison Experiment, but the Rosenhan experiment. You see, many psychiatrists and doctors at hospitals for the mentally ill were offended by Rosenhan's study. And Rosenhan said he would send pseudo-patients for three months to their clinics to see if they would be able to sniff them out from the people who were actually mentally ill. Over the next three months, 193 patients were evaluated at these specific hospitals. 41 of these patients were determined to be pseudo-patients based on a 10-point checklist they had created. When the doctors went to Rosenhan with these results, he informed them that he had actually sent no one. Nobody. No pseudo-patients. Their checklist was wrong. So did Rosenhan set out what he intended to do? Did he prove that a diagnostic scale cannot determine sanity or insanity? Well, to an extent. But then how can hospitals decide who has a mental illness and who does not? And, as mentioned, we're currently on our fifth edition of the DSM, so it's obviously still very much in use. But Rosenhan's argument that the behaviors and symptoms should have more bearing on a patient's care and less emphasis should be based on a label has been influential, even if checklists still exist. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.